0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. This is the second edition of the 12th series. Can you believe it? I I, I really struggle to um, get my head around how successful this show has been. Anyway, good evening. My name's Mary Cook. I'm a barrister and a partner in Town Legal, and it's my privilege to be your host today as the um, effervescent Mr. Banner. Uh, is busy on uh, travelling back from Dubai where he promises us he's been working uh, rather than having a having a jolly um so as ever this uh is a free event and we encourage you uh if you feel able to make a donation to charity whether it's um Sir Brian Mays charity which uh Charlie is so fond of the Save Me Trust or whether it's Shelter or whether it's uh, helping the Ukraine uh, emergency uh, appeal, um, we just remind you and invite you to uh, make a donation if you would like. So, our very special guest this evening, uh, who we are delighted to welcome is Andreas, Andreas Markidis, author of Urban Myths. And uh, I will have the great honor of interviewing him after we have done the um, case law updates. And don't worry about the uh the late appearance of Mr. Tucker. Uh he will be joining us. Uh he's on the motorway, sadly, where there was an accident, so he's been slightly held up. He's not here now. Oh, is is he here? Oh, marvellous. I can't see him on my screen. Hello, Mary. Hello, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't see you on my screen. I'm Is flowers. Gonna... <laughs> <I didn't laughs> <that I> <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, so sorry. Um, so let's start by going over to Andreas and asking him where he is calling in from, what he's drinking, and what is your theme? Okay, thank you very much, Mary. I'm
1: delighted to join you. I have to say that uh, I've, I've, um, I'm used to answering questions from one barrister, but when it comes to four or five, <laughs> I'm quaking in my seat right now. <laughs> but uh, I know that um, it's going to be. a uh, a pleasant evening, and I look forward to our discussion. Where am I? I'm in my home in Hampshire. I'm having a cup of tea. Um, um, usually I have coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon, and something different in the evenings. And um, um, I think um, you had asked me to consider a theme for the evening as well. Well, you wouldn't expect anything else from me. This is the book called Mythologica which was the textbook of a, of a part-time course I did at Oxford uni a couple of years ago on Greek mythology. And it, uh, and it was a book written by, of course, the professor running that course. And I have to turn to, well, I, I won't bother. The, it's, it's a fantastic book, lots of good pictures, uh, the highlight of which is Medusa, she with the um, snakes on her head, I will never forget the horror on my ch- on my grandchildren's face <laughs> when I was reading that story to them. <laughs> so, okay, I'd to join you. Okay, thank you very much.
0: So, Chris, how are you today?
2: I'm very well, Mary. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I've picked up on the theme. Uh, over here is uh, Presumption, and he's been reading about ah, the gods of Olympus. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I've. Chipped in. I've got uh, Pegasus. that have been instructing me today. I've been having a conference, so. <laughs> and uh, from Greek myth to Greek tragedy, I'm drinking out of an Arsenal mug. Oh, because <laughs> oh. it all looks so good at Christmas, doesn't it, Sasha? And then it all slips away. <laughs> you are still in a good position, Chris. You are still in a good position. Yeah, 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 I don't support them. It's just Sasha. But in like a winding <laughs> mug, i in <don't> public.
3: <laughs>
0: so, Sasha. How are you? I'm very well. I'm going to mention,
4: and Andreas will tell me I've got the pronunciation wrong, Adephagia, who apparently is the Greek god of gluttony. And I'm on my way to a Burns Night Supper, where I'm going to salute the Haggis and have it piped in. So I think that's the appropriate god for me to mention in that.
1: 10 out of 10, Sasha, for the pronunciation. Oh,
4: thank you. I'm sure I'm sure you're just complimenting. I'm sure you're just being nice. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Here we go.
0: And here's our very lovely Thor, King of the North?
3: Uh, I'm very stressed, thank you, Mary, because the trip from Manchester to my son's house in Clitheroe uh, has so far taken me an hour and a half. And in order to make sure that I wasn't horribly late for this, I've had to dive into friends' house so i haven't got the big poseidon that i bought my son uh in relation to that so i'm currently in copster green for those who know lancashire uh, particularly well and mercifully i have extraordinarily well-read friends because i grabbed this off the shelf so anything which involves philosophy has to have greek at its heart that's the <laughs> best i could come up within the two minutes i'm desperately to get on a few <laughs> moments ago um, and
0: i can't remember what good evening in greek is. so <laughs> Well, that will really do thank you very much Paul, for making the effort uh, uh after a, a stressful journey we we all really appreciate it so we we will begin with the lovely sasha white and his planning update
4: yes thank you very much mary i've decided to assist our viewers i put a few things down on on the screen which hopefully wonderful rob will get up for us but i've got four news items that I want to bring to our viewers today, two social and two of substance. The first is, relates to BNG, of course, which I just wanted to comment that we are basically on the verge of requiring the BNG requirements. We've all been, probably in every con we've all done for the past year, our clients have asked, when is BNG going to be actually formalised and in play, and it appears to be in play on the 12th of Feb, basically, um, for four major applications. Of course, it's not retrospective as I understand it. Um, so that is pretty seminal, frankly, and it will affect probably most of the applications that we and our viewers are involved in. So the twelfth of Feb is the red letter day. Um, the only other couple of points there are different provisions for small applications and also for the rather peculiar applications such as Section 73s. So I think watch this space for the future and when the provisions go live on that. So that's item one. The second item I want to mention, which is, again, which will be probably one of the biggest hearings slash inquiries of 2024, is the decision of the Mayor of London to call in the All England case. And that will be, um, it is said by Jules Pike, to be effectively... A matter that will go to hearing so no doubt that will occupy a lot of us in the in the coming months the third news item I think it's important to put to notice that we now have a new president of the RTPI we should congratulate Lindsay Richards for her appointment this week as the new 110th RTPI president so congratulations and I'm sure she'll have a fantastic year and finally, from my own parish, I want to um, congratulate a very, very honourable and good planning silt, Mr. Tim Mould, who today left our company in a good way and was elevated to the High Court bench. So I'm sure a lot of our viewers will come across him in his new, his new position as a High Court judge in the King's bench division and no doubt he will hear many many planning cases in the future so congratulations to Tim and congratulations to Lindsay thank you Mary and congratulations
2: and con- sasha to all the silks uh in our world who uh, were appointed silk um, many congratulations to all
1: of them agreed
0: quite quite right Chris um and thank you very much uh and uh yes I think um I think our new newest addition to the High Court will be a Will be a sympathetic um, tribunal, let's put it Mm. like that, Um, uh, as well as uh, obviously very well informed. And so, without any further ado, Paul, we go over to you because you're going to tell us all about a very interesting Court of Appeal case. Uh,
3: I I am, and I'm going to do it extempore because idiotically my notebook is in the car about 20 minutes away. Uh, this is entirely off the top of my head, although I just sure you're familiar with doing that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> a career and thirty years doing that, right? First, firstly, um, two of the advocates in this case are amongst the uh, two of the five um, silks that have just been recently appointed. Uh, so that that would be from uh, Sasha's Chambers. Rich attorney was acting for the claimants in this particular case. Mark Westman Smith from FTB. Was acting for uh, the first defendants in this case. This is a challenge uh, against a development consent order in relation to offshore wind farms um, in relation to the impact of communities in and around Friston, Friston being a spot in Suffolk. Uh, I checked that on the map before I said anything at all. That's I that was practically pressing around here. It's not Surrey, it's not Hampshire, it's definitely, definitely, definitely Suffolk. Um, so the, it's a challenge uh, where the decision was issued by uh, Mr. Just uh, Lord Justice Lewis, uh, who was my director of studies at Cambridge, uh, and he once told me that administrative law was not a career in which I should be uh, should think ever to practice. There's an irony. <laughs> uh, so Lord Justice Lewis has has done a, 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 a judgment which is an appeal against the decision of Mr. Justice Lang, uh, who refused a challenge against the issue of two development spent orders where the essence of the challenge didn't relate to the wind farms. The wind farms were essentially uncontroversial to local residents. The The contention was that there was a problem with the 40 odd hectares onshore, shore um, and there were two grounds of challenge which were maintained uh, before the Court of Appeal. Um, one of them is a fairly conventional ground of challenge which uh, relates to the environmental statement and the issue in relation to that fairly sim- simply stated which was that uh, there was a consideration of the effects of the appeal scheme, obviously, but as the appeal scheme had been lodged, there were two other schemes uh, not too far away uh, uh, um, where, which were at a very early stage of consideration um, and the argument was, well, all that the applicant had done for the, the DCO had done is produced a a, a a short assessment in relation to those saying, we don't know very much about them so when we've looked at the effects in relation to this, we've produced all that we can in relation to that. And the challenge was, well, that's not really a proper cumulative assessment within the, the scope of the uh, the regulations. And both the courts, the High Court and also the Court of Appeals said it's a matter of judgment for the decision maker as to whether or not that was adequate. And overall, doing the best that they could at the stage that they could in relation to the DCO was sufficient for the Secretary of State ultimately to agree with the examining authority, um, Infrastructure Planning Commission, or, or that part of PINs which deals with very big major schemes, uh, that the Secretary of State was entitled to conclude as a matter of judgment uh, that uh, that was adequate. That's the conventional aspect of it. The, the interesting one relates to flood risk. And if I can just take a step back, one of the things that, that we all habitually will tell our clients when when they come to see us is, Planning is an unusual area because we're not just dealing with matters of law, we're also dealing with issues of guidance and policy and how guidance and policy slots into decision-making. And what the courts, and I'm sure Lord Justice Lewis would have told me, uh, told my 20-year-old self, is that guidance is something to be taken into account in the relevant circumstances, but it doesn't have to be followed precisely in all circumstances. You need to form a judgment based upon having regard to what the guidance says. So in this instance, there's a number of different sources of guidance which were relevant in respect of uh, flooding. So there was an issue in terms of fluvial flooding for this onshore part of the offshore wind farm, the substation, etc. There was an issue in terms of um, fluvial flooding, which was dealt with in the conventional way. And there were a number of different sites that were looked at. They were all modelled at an early stage in the process. And this was the site. The site near Friston was identified as the best site. But during the course of uh, consideration of the, the DCO, guidance changed to say that surface water flooding should also be considered at all stages of the process. How do you do that when you've done the sequential test in relation to fluvial and then you weave into that the surface water element? Well, what the applicants did was they said, well, we'll look at what the effects of the surface water uh, impacts are. We'll produce another piece of work and we'll examine that. What they didn't do was go all the way back to the starting point and look at the sequential approach because the guidance didn't require them to do that. The guidance didn't say you have to do that. It did in relation to uh, what they did initially, but they didn't say when you weave in the surface water, that's the issue. So one might argue that the guidance itself is defective. And in fact, Justice Lewis made that point that there is a lacuna in relation to the guidance. But given that it's come partway through the process, what the court said was there was enough information that surface water issue issues had been taken into account in a proper way as a matter of planning judgment throughout the process from the point at which uh, the guidance changed and that was sufficient to enable the decision maker to take a lawful decision and this is the big point going right back to what i said a moment ago granston tells you that guidance is just guidance it's not the law you have to take it into account you do not have to follow it as a black letter lawyer going if you have gone through the sequential test then the outturn has to be x planning isn't a flow diagram administrative law isn't a flow diagram it's a matter of having regards to these material considerations and Amazingly, flood risk issue has no statutory base in terms of that. It's got a policy and a guidance basis and upon which uh, a decision maker is entitled to form a planning judgment based on the totality of the information in front of them, provided they meet the relevant tests of administrative law. So it's important in relation to flagging up that however much angst one might have about the complexities of flood risk and how it slots into planning, it is just another material consideration and the guidance is something that has to be taken into account. Frankly, from all the time that we have wrestled with flood risk issues at planning appeals and advising clients, uh, sometimes I wish that was writ large on the front front of MPPF. This is just policy; you can take it into account and apply it to the particular circumstances of the case as a matter of planning judgment. Here endeth the lesson, and hopefully that corresponds with what I've written down in the in the uh, in, in the cart. Thanks very much, Mary. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Paul, and I'm sure it has, and it won't be the last um, kick court case that we hear about flood risk uh, because we know that um, Mr Justice Holgate has recently been hearing uh, a couple of other uh, associated flood risk cases, which no doubt we'll come back to. Now, we're going to go with the uh, uh, help of Rob to Charlie and his summary of the Southwark. Uh, High Court case, which is all about um, 96A.
5: Well, they say that uh, buses come in threes, and the same is true of cases on the Pilkington principle. We had Hillside uh, last year in the Supreme Court, and only in the last episode of of this show uh, was I discussing the case of Fisk, on whether Hillside implications uh, for my later permission could be a material consideration. And now we've got another one, um, the case of Dennis uh, and Southwark and, and Notting Hill Genesis decided by Mr Justice Holgate uh, last week. Um, this concerns uh, a section 96A non-material amendment to make a earlier planning mission expressly severable. Uh, the background of this uh, was that uh, there was an outline permission uh, for the regeneration of the Aylesbury estate, uh, which Not- Notting Hill Genesis uh, were leading on. Um, The phase 2B of that scheme in July uh, 2022 uh, needed, for various reasons, to depart from the parameters of the outline permission. So a full detailed drop-in permission uh, was granted uh, for that particular phase within the overall development site covered by the outline permission. Uh, A concern then arose as to whether if that later permission was implemented, that could generate a Hilkington, or now Hillside, issue in relation to the outline permission because the later permission, the fear went, uh, could render physically impossible uh, the completion of the first permission, the outline permission, in accordance with its terms, which would mean that, lying Hillside and Pilkington, the earlier permission could no longer be relied upon for future development outside the area of the drop in. And so um, what was done was an application was made under Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act to um, amend, <coughs> so it was said in a non-material fashion, uh, the Outline Permission to introduce the word severable so that certain elements of the Outline Permission development, including in particular the Phase 2B covered by the drop-in, um, were freestanding, which would, so the argument went. And ensure that there wouldn't be a hillside issue. Uh, now the uh, the argument developed by the time the case went to court to the effect that the outline permission was already um, inherently severable and the section 96a uh, non-material amendment was simply spelling out what was already implicit in the original permission. Uh, the parties by the time of the hearing agreed uh, that if that wasn't the case And if the original outline permission uh, was not uh, severable implicitly, then uh, making it severable by section 96A would be outside the powers because it would be uh, introducing a material amendment to the outline permission by by virtue of introducing severability. Um, Fortunately, it turns out uh, the drop-in permission hadn't been implemented by the time of Mr Justice Holgate's judgment, so the issues were able to be tested prospectively before uh, the developer had done anything uh, irrevocable uh, by implementing the later permission. Mr Justice Holgate started uh, by observing that it was common ground and he agreed that section 96A unlike section 73 following the Philip Finney case uh, enables a non-material amendment to the the grant or the operative part of the, of the permission either description of development. Uh, you can't do that under section 73 you can under section 96A, provided that the change is not uh, material. Uh, the judge then went went to consider the uh, particular issues in the case. Uh, he started by rejecting the submission um, that uh, the, uh, the, the it, it followed um, from the fact that a planning commission doesn't have to be implemented in full, as was confirmed by Hillside, um, that severability... Uh, of elements could be inferred from that. The judge noted if that was the case, then on the facts, the, the appellant in Hillside um, would have won. Um, Mr. Justice Holgate went on to note, importantly, um, that a planning commission is not to be construed um, as severable in the absence of clear express uh, provision uh, to that effect. So the question became, was the clear express provision uh, or, or perhaps necessary implication In the terms of the outline permission in the present case. Mr Justice Holgate then went on to consider well what was actually meant by severable in the particular context of the Pilkington principle and there's an interesting passage in the judgment where he deals with that uh, and uh, his overall analysis is what severable means in this particular context is there isn't in fact one grant of planning permission but multiple grants of permission in the position in question, uh, for the individual several elements of the development. And he noted that itself created issues, for example, in relation to the time limits for commencement of development. Um, Mr. Justice Holgate then went on uh, to say that whether a permission is to be uh, considered several is a matter of law, not a matter of planning judgment, a matter of law construction of the consent, and that's relevant in the context of uh, potential challenges to decisions uh, uh, by local authorities or inspectors that a permission either is or isn't uh, severable. Um, he then um, went on to um, uh, to find that on the facts of the case, uh, the outline permission uh, wasn't severable. It was a single planning permission uh, with provisions for phasing. There was a discussion in the judgment as to whether a phasing condition or, or other um, terms of a permission that related to phasing meant that the individual phases were severable and the judge rejected that that wasn't sufficient to amount to an express provision for severability of the nature required by the supreme court um, so the, the uh, claim was dismissed um, and uh, the judge uh, held that there wasn't the necessary express severability with all the implications for time limits etc of a an outline permission in fact being treated as a bundle of separate individual permissions Um, and uh, and therefore um, the claim was uh, allowed on the basis that the uh, introduction of the word severable in the outline commission by the non-material amendment amounted to in fact a material and indeed in law a material amendment outside the powers uh, of section 96a he went on uh, to say that uh, he would have in any event strong reservations about the legality of an amendment to a planning commission which inserts language as uncertain, the judge's word, as the term severable. The judge said that term on its own um, wasn't uh, so, or may not be sufficiently certain uh, to define the implications of severability, bearing in mind, as I said, that he viewed um, this concept as a uh, introducing not one permission, but a bundle of separate freestanding permissions, each with their own standalone conditions within the terms of one planning permission, so something more than just the bare term severable is required. So where does that leave us in relation to Hillside? Well, the real answer is in a downright mess. It's crying out for legislation. Um, we are going to have at some point, once um, elements of the Laura are introduced, Section 73b, which will allow um, uh, non-significant, but more than material amendments to planning permission, but uh, arguably that's not enough. Uh, but what we do know now in light of uh, the Dennis' judgment is firstly, Section 96A can't make severable a permission, which isn't. Secondly, a severable permission is a is in fact a document containing a number, of bundle, different freestanding permissions, each with their own time limits and conditions, etc. So making a permission severable is complicated and has potential implications. Thirdly, um, if you re- are going to do this, you have to do it absolutely expressly Uh, the courts are going to be very slow if completely reluctant to infer and imply severability Uh, and lastly if you're going to do it you probably need to say something more than simply severable uh, because that word on its own given the implications of uh, having a bundle of different permissions may well be judged to be uh, too uncertain so the real solution probably as i said is legislation let's hope it comes Thank you very much. Over to
2: the team.
0: Well, thank you very much, Charlie. And so, Chris, without further ado, you are going to take us to an appeal decision in Milton Keynes.
2: I am indeed, Mary. Thank you very much. Milton Keynes, uh, which features in Andreas's book, Your Chapter on Atlantis, talks about Milton Keynes, albeit briefly. See, I've read the book. um the the uh, story here is about um, a extra care proposal but what we're now calling an integrated care community because there's also uh, a care home. There were bungalows as well, and there was um, 196 conventional houses. So overall, a development quite big, over 500 units of accommodation in four different types. And then unusually, you can see from the last bullet point, accompanied by a change of use uh, application for 69 hectares of agricultural land to become a linear park um, and that was to be put in public ownership through um, or through a, a, a trust um, and effectively to take up ownership of that huge area to go with this proposal. But as we can see, the appeal was dismissed and um, it was dismissed fairly convincingly. Um, and there's been a lot of dismissals recently. We've all noted that. Um, and before Christmas, there was another extra care village which was dismissed as well. So this sector, which is desperate to expand, is really struggling in terms of its ability to do so. Um, And in this case, what we see is an application of planning policy, landscape policy, valued landscape and ecological constraints all being relied upon by the inspector to justify refusal in this case. So if we go forward, um, we can see that um, amongst the policy constraints was the fact that there was the habersham Come little Linford neighborhood plan straight out of Little Britain, that is. Uh, And uh, it was made on the 13th of September 2023, so shortly before this decision in January of this year. And um, we now have the new MPPF with less criteria as far as the MPPF are concerned for qualifying to effectively stop development in neighbourhood plan areas. Uh, It came out in one version on the 19th of December, was quickly changed, um, not shortly after our special on the MPPF which Charlie covered, um, and there's only two criteria now, and both of those criteria are met, making development in this type of location extremely difficult if it isn't supported by a neighbourhood plan. Only two criteria are required, and, and then you face effectively a reverse presumption um, or a presumption against developments in effect. So um, lots of difficulties there. That's uh, the first one. That's the neighbourhood plan. Uh, we move forward. Um, As far as the local plan is concerned, uh, Milton Keynes has a local plan adopted in 2019. Um, It does its fair share of heavy lifting, to be fair to uh, John Palmer and all the team at uh, Milton Keynes. Uh, They've got a population of 270,000. That's the geographer of me coming out, but 270,000 in Milton Keynes and their plan Um, for their 15-year period is um, 26,500 homes. So they're not shirking housing delivery. They're looking to deliver about a tenth uh, the number of houses against the size of the population um, or 20% increase in effect of population. Um, And they have a five-year land supply. Um, And the argument that was run then with a relatively up-to-date plan and a five-year land supply is that they, the plan should be seen as out of date because there was due to be a review of the plan. So one of these immediate reviews um, or a review that had to be um, progressed to the point where a draft plan, replacement draft plan, was submitted by December 2022. And as the inspector observed, that deadline had not been met. Um, but he didn't feel that invalidated the local plan or the spatial strategy. And he therefore felt um, that he wouldn't reduce weight uh, to be associated or attributed to the development plan. And um, the plan, since its adoption, hadn't got to five years, so it wasn't out of date for having an out of date housing number. So that particular strategy of attacking the plan because um, the review, which was required by the local plan inspector, hadn't taken place, failed in this instance. It has succeeded elsewhere, but not in this case. If we go forward, um, the inspector's overall conclusion is the spatial strategy was not out of date. He gave the policies full weight. Um, It was a breach of the policies protecting the countryside and also a breach of HLL1 in the neighbourhood plan, which is seeking to protect the same thing. So a straightforward policy refusal uh, upheld and supported at appeal. If we move forward, we can see that um, the area was designated for... um, Uh, It wasn't designated at a national level but the inspector says that the uh, sinuous nature of the water bodies and the irregular shapes of the intervening grazing land and tree belts contrast with the more regular and more intensively farmed arable and pastoral lands of the north um, and this differentiated by its flat low-lying nature from the rising ground to the north led the inspector to conclude that this was a valued landscape. So... um, We had a lot of those when the MPBF first came out. Not so many now, but this was an example where, based on no designations, the inspector actually felt that the the nature of the landscape he was looking at meant it was a valued landscape. And as we know, the MPBF seeks to protect rather than just recognise when it qualifies as a valued landscape, not AOMB or national landscapes or anything of that kind. If we go forward... Um, we can see the confirmation in the first part of paragraph 24 that it was elevated to the status of a valued landscape. Um, And he clearly thought it was an attractive landscape, an attractive location, and didn't want the development to go ahead. If that were not bad enough, um, there's the additional difficulty of the ecological constraints. If we go forward, um, we can see that the appeal site was uh, designated as part of the great linford gravel pits biological notification area the river uh great ooze milton Keynes wildlife corridor and the ooze valley biodiversity opportunity area so a whole series of designations there of course a lot of the site was being enhanced for its ecological value you know this wasn't a a a um uh, an application where they sought to develop over the whole site challenging as that set of uh circumstances uh, would appear they were looking to enhance a lot of it but the inspector felt that um, uh, overall ecological issues um, were another reason for refusal if we just go forward he noted that um, even though some of it didn't uh, qualify pri- priority, uh, a priority habitat he did feel that it supported a, wild, a wide variety of wildlife protected and priority species bat otter great crested newt grass, snake, slow worm, it's not really what you want in a development site, is it? So um, the inspector uh, felt that it was, um, again, not appropriate because of the species that were present. If we carry on, he makes the observation that despite the enhancements, and there undoubted significant enhancements proposed, it was the fact that there'd be a permanent source of disturbance to, uh, to the neighbouring land from the residential development, the human activity at the lake edges and the wetland margins, and of course, you know, people will bring dogs and cats and so on. And it's very difficult to police that possibly easier in an organized scheme like the extra care. Very difficult for residential development to try and ban people from having cats, for example. So overall, uh, it failed on ecological grounds as well. If we just go forward, we can see the appearances. And I just want to note uh, here again, we have a local authority and nearly every one of those um Uh, witnesses for the local authority, successful in their various areas, was a member of Milton Keynes Council. So well done to the council team, well done for fielding council witnesses. The exception was somebody from Pegasus. And with that, we move straight to the interview.
0: (laughs) Good segue, Chris. Thank you very much indeed for that. So Andreas, let me please start by introducing you. You're a chartered civil engineer with a master in transport planning from Imperial College you began your very distinguished career with Peter Brett Associates, a name that I think all of us will be familiar with. Um, and then your second job, which is where I met you, uh, as I recall, was yep. when you were with uh, Colin Thank Cannon you. and Partners. That's right. And after 22 y- years there, you rose to become chair of that yep. very august organization. <laughs> Uh, following on, really, from Malcolm, son of Sir Colin uh, himself, you're <laughs> a past president of the Chartered Institute of Highways and Transportation, and you are about to become next week chair of the Academy of Urbanism. So, that, congratulations! Thank uh, you, Mary, yes. uh, on that. Yes. Uh, and um, after uh, Colin Buchanan, uh, you founded, of course. Marquidi's associate some eight years ago, right. and and you now have some thirty five uh, engineers and transport planning planners working for for you. And again, you are now chair of that organisation. Um, so, just coming back to the uh, Academy of Urbanism, which is not something we've discussed on this uh, show before, um, you've also uh, written a number of articles. Mm-hmm exploring links between Greek civilization uh, and the various myths, hence the theme, uh, and the built environment. And You've brought those articles together and um, published this book, Urban Myths, um, yeah. which is very interesting and I, I, I encourage everyone to um, go out and buy it on your behalf. Um, but I want to start my questions, please, Andreas, with can you tell us a bit more about the Academy of Urbanism? Of what course, is yeah. what's the what's its purpose? How many members are there? Uh, yeah, let's start with that.
1: So the Academy of Urbanism is a is a non for profit, uh, non political organization that was the brainchild of John Thompson. Uh, you may know, yes, John yes. Thompson and Partners. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, it started life nearly twenty years ago, and the whole idea was that it wanted to bring the um, architecture and the engineering people together and to celebrate uh, places, placemaking. I've I've got its um, mission statement here, it's very short. Our mission is to recognize, encourage and celebrate great places across the UK, Europe and beyond. So it's all about placemaking and its mission is to encourage learning amongst professionals as a result of which um, it carries out many visits to European cities um, to learn how the Scandinavians, the Germans, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are doing um, urbanism. And hmm. um, it's got about uh, 1,300 members, and now it's got wow. a very active, it's got a very active program of events, including an awards um, uh, at the end of each uh, year. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's been a great. Um, school for me as an engineer to have been involved with the academy all these years.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And tell us, what are you going to focus on in your role as the next chair of this organization? Okay, yes.
1: The the academy is very ambitious and um, I hope that I will be able to help it to uh, uh, achieve all, all these different uh, ambitions. Um, very briefly, we want to spread our wings. At the moment, it's a little bit south-centric if you like we want to Mm. we want to encourage more people in manchester edinburgh etc to to become involved with us we want to increase the influence of the academy so we have established a policy unit that will try and influence emerging government policy and in particular we want to bring in Younger people. We want. Oh. We started what we call the young urbanists uh, movement. These are people that have just left university and they are interested in this subject. Um, yeah, we we focus on many different um, themes. Uh, I want to focus on health and well-being, probably because of the following conversation that I had uh, on one of the visits that we had in Europe. We were in Utrecht, and I asked. Uh, At the end of the visit, I asked the planning director of the city. In one word, I said to him, what is your key objective for the city of Utrecht? And if I had asked this question of any planning director in, in the UK, I'm sure they would have said, I don't know, housing or the economy or even traffic. (laughs) This, this gentleman said to me, um, health our key objective is health and well-being of our citizens, physical, mental, you know, and everything we do in the city, we always ask the question, will that create healthier citizens? And I thought that was fantastic, and it's something that the Academy will try and promote during my term of office.
0: Well, uh, I find that really interesting, because I personally believe that there isn't enough uh, talk about health in planning and the MPPF. And I think we should be asking ourselves that same question when we make uh, each and every planning application uh, going forward. Anyway, my next question, my next question, how important is human behavior in the study of urbanism? Please, Andreas, what...
1: My goodness. Well, it's central to urbanism. Human behavior should be central to everything we do and... um, I was pleased to find out, actually, the, that very recently um, a, a gentleman called Professor Nick Tyler, very, very distinguished uh, person, um, established a laboratory in East London. Uh, you know, he pointed at his used uh, big space and established a laboratory where he carries out tests as to how people um, react. To different environments, so for example, different types of footpaths, uh, different types of lighting, um, the noise from a passing train—all of these things. Because, in in his view, it's um, uh, it's human behavior and the environment that we live in that are so important. And mm-hmm. um, and and I think human behavior is also central to both. Uh, my own profession of transport planning as well as urbanism. So yeah, I couldn't emphasize it
0: uh, more. Thank you, thank you. Um, What about uh, technology? I want to ask you about technology. Um, Is it a help or a hindrance, do you think, to encouraging um, the right behavior, as it were, um, in transport planning? Um, Technology has its
1: role. But it comes way down, what I was saying earlier, uh, uh, which is human behavior. You. you know, obviously, uh, transport planners use technology to uh, to good effect in some places. For example, optimizing traffic signals and um, finding out whether the, ne- the next bus will come, etc. That's all very mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. But of course, it, it has its dangers as well, as, as we know. A lot of people talk about autonomous vehicles, but of course, that's... Um, I don't think that will help the environment. Uh, whether whether the vehicle is autonomous or driven by a by a person, it will still have an impact on the place that we live in, and it will have legal uh, re- repercussions, as I'm sure you appreciate. So, so technology has a role, but it's not central. And in fact, I was um, I was really very struck two or three months ago I was on holiday in Canada and I saw a sign by the the side of the road which said um, be courteous to other road users and I thought such a powerful message you know it's much more important to be courteous as a user of the of the roads than optimizing traffic signals you know it's human behavior and at the end of the day it comes down to to the to our own values really the the, the society that we live in and what and what do we consider to be more important um yes so uh, if if we if we manage technology then it will it will be it, it will have something to offer to us but it's not central
0: um i mean i i, I just want to make a comment and again i'm 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 thinking really about in the transport world and i'm thinking yes. how how useful it is for example that in london I, I can travel with the same card on the tube the train the bus that's technology which i think is you know it's really helpful yeah I, I, if i go to manchester i can't do that yeah i uh, which i find really frustrating and just as much as the mayor of manchester and everybody no doubt who who, who lives mm. there so mm. I, I i mean i think technology can be really helpful if it's Properly deployed, and yeah. it, can cer- it can certainly encourage us all to use uh, public transport. our city, our city dwellers, anyway. Um, net, net. My next question really is about collaboration between professionals, and whether you think that there is enough collaboration uh, between professionals. By which I mean uh, architects, transport planners, um, urban design uh, practitioners. Um, do, do you think people are the, collaborating enough?
1: No. This, this is one of the, my biggest concerns, really, about the built environment profession. I've worked with architects, planners, project managers. You know. Everybody works in their own little silo. And um, it's, not, it's not good for the profession. Certainly, in Europe, they do things uh, very differently. They work more collaboratively together in a holistic way. And dare I say, you know, uh, the the legal profession is far more holistic than, uh, let's say, the engineering or the planning uh, disciplines. You know, you you don't just know the law, you know about the environment, the health and all these other issues. And I wish that there was more collaboration between um, the different uh, disciplines. There is a very, there is a lovely poem by uh, a modern Greek poet called Walls, the walls that separate people. If we have, t- it's only half a minute. I'm, g- I'm going to recite it, if you don't mind, uh, Mary, because it's one of my favorites. Go on then. Okay. It's by a gentleman called Cost- Constantine Cavafy, mm-hmm. and it, and it goes like this. Without consideration, without pity, without shame, they have built big and high walls around me and now I sit here despairing, I think of nothing else, this fate knows at my mind, for I had many things to do outside, oh, why didn't I notice them when they were building these walls, but I never noticed the noise or the sound or the builders, imperceptibly they shut me out of this world. So, the silos that control our profession. And the poem obviously applies to ad- other aspects, religion and, uh, s- you know, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Ah. I think it's, it's a very powerful indictment of the compartmentalization of uh, not only uh, our profession, but many other aspects of our life. Mm.
0: Well, on a positive note, um, perhaps design coding um is another um medium by which um professionals can come together you know the the the, the different disciplines um and work a little bit more uh, in harmony yeah. and in in tune with each other um again my okay so my next question uh is about um again a, a transport theme yeah is our is our desire do you think to measure quantify and accommodate all types of traffic do you think that's the right approach um to a transport assessment and do you think i mean does it pay enough attention to human behavior which okay. you, you obviously think is so important
1: yeah uh, quantification per se in my view is not wrong it's it's a question of what we quantify So if we quantify, if we focus on quantifying uh, the length of a traffic cube, that's wrong. If we were to quantify the impact on the environment or uh, the impact on uh, human health, that would be a lot better. So I don't think it's the numbering, it's the numbers that are wrong. (laughs) Um, You would expect uh, an engineer to say that to defend the maths, wouldn't you? But, um, it's it's the way we apply it. So if we were to apply it in a different way, um I, 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 um, I remember when I was at Colin Buchanan and partners, um uh, you you remember that we were debating crossrail for many, many years, cross the, the line that has now become Elizabeth was mm. drawn by GLC in nineteen seventy four and and for twenty five years we were saying, it won't make money, it's not good, it's not good, because we were using cost-benefit analysis. So in that case, we were quantifying the wrong things. And it wasn't really until it, it was Colin Buchanan and Partners who said, look, why don't we quantify all the economic benefits that will come from the Elizabeth line, and all the health benefits, and all the um, environmental, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And um, Gordon Brown was the chancellor at the time and got our team to do quantification in that way. And suddenly, Crossrail made a lot of sense. And it was on that basis that he pushed the button and uh, we, we had it delivered in the end. So I don't think that quantification per se is wrong, so long as you quantify the right things.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, I'm very glad you um you did persuade Gordon Brown to pre- <laughs> yes. press the button uh, uh because yeah. obviously the Elizabeth line has been a rip-roaring success um for those who were able to benefit from it. Um what please do you think is the single biggest change between your early career and that of a young transport planner today?
1: Well, yeah, when I first started uh, the highway engineering profession, I, I would say it was very monolithic. It was very much it was very much um, uh, number crunching, a lot of traffic modeling, a lot of uh, highway standards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm pleased to say that uh, probably a result of uh, a lot of good work done by the Chartered Institute of Highways and Transportation, as well as um, many other organisations it's beginning to change. So the role of, a um, highway engineer shouldn't be calling them highway engineers, transport planners is yeah, yeah. Um, is much broader now. Mm. And I think, um, that's, uh, that's good. We still have a long way to go, but, um, uh, I, I, I think that that's probably the biggest, uh, the, the biggest change when, um, when I talk to my staff or whoever likes to listen to what I have to say, uh, I tell them: Do not confine yourselves to just, uh, you know, traffic modeling, like a engineering. You need to know about the world around us because this is what transport planning is central to our world, isn't it? So we need to know. It is the politics, the the, the environmental issues, all of these things need to come into into our work.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Andreas, and I, I think I need to just open this out a little uh, to the others. So, we have a question from Charlie, if you just bear with us, we'll start with Charlie.
5: Hi Andreas, um, greetings from Dubai, I'm sorry I can't be with you for the live show, I'm over here for a, a hearing this week, um, can I just say how much I loved your book over Christmas, uh, really thought-provoking, um, and as a former uh, classic student myself, a subject uh, very close to my heart. So my question for you is this: Is that the ancient Greek historian Thucydides um, described his history as a conteminate sia, possession forever? Uh, given that history repeats itself, and there were lessons in his account of the Peloponnesian War that could be uh, used by later generations. Um, Andreas, what uh, I- in your view, um, what aspect of history is our most important possession at the moment,
1: uh, teaching us our most important lesson that we can learn from? Oh my goodness, what a brilliant question from a classic uh, scholar. Um, Personally, I love history, and um, Thucydides, uh, which is the Greek name of Thucydides, (laughs) Um, I I read him um, um, uh, when I was younger. I loved um, his description of the Peloponnesian War, which is really what brought about the collapse of, uh, of the Athens' uh, empire, if you like. Um, hist- we all know that history repeats itself. And I know, for example, that um, uh, Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War is a textbook um, at the American uh, uh, Academy, the West Point of, of all <laughs> uh, the They consider it important to know what brought about that war and, and its effects. I don't think there is a better illustration of the importance of history than, uh, the, the, than that. What, what I also found interesting, I read somewhere that um, many of the American soldiers coming back from uh, Iraq and um, uh, Kuwait, et cetera, et cetera, who were traumatized by the war, were sent to go and watch um, a, a play by Sophocles, which deals with the trauma of war. in in order to help them recover from all of that. And um, the history has got so many different layers Mm. to it. It's like an onion, you peel it off and you see all these different measures. Just to leave my ancient uh, ancestors uh, 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 behind for a minute and come back to modern times, I was so struck uh, when I read about um, uh, the, the following episode in, with Hitler, he, he when when he was embarking on the destruction of the of the Jews, one of his advisors said, "What is the world going to say when they find out about what we are doing to the Jews?" And um, and he replied, "Who remembers the Armenians now?" Implying that the Armenian genocide which had happened 30 years earlier, was forgotten. So even though history is important and repeats itself, we tend to forget it. And uh, that's how we, we we, we almost make the same mistakes Mm. all the time.
0: The mood, I fear, has changed. I'm um, sorry about. No, 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 no. It's really interesting. It's really interesting, and I'd like to go now, uh, please, to Paul. And I'm conscious that we're running out of time. But Paul, what's your question, please? Um, yeah, my
3: my question. Um, just coming back in relation to that, my uh, former head of chambers, Andrew Gilbert, his grandfather was one of the, the reporters, an American reporter, on the Armenian uh, genocide, and he was always, uh, always stressed how important it was not to forget that. So the the lesson of history is uh, that we shouldn't forget history. Anyway, um, my question is far lighter, uh, although perhaps um, uh, along the same sort of line of me showing off, because I've done a bit of reading behind the scenes like Charlie has. He went to a comp, by the way. Ignore all his uh, pretend learning. Um, was Pericles, who obviously rebuilt Athens and created the Acropolis and the amazing things that are at the top of, uh, uh, of that phenomenal hill in Athens, was Pericles the world's greatest town planner?
1: What a fantastic question. Pericles, I'm sure you all know, uh, was um, uh, uh, Boris Johnson's hero. You know, allegedly he had a statue of Pericles on his desk. Uh, I I, I think that was delusional by Mr. Johnson. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um,
1: Uh, just like he was delusioned when he wrote the book about Churchill. uh, Yes. (laughs) And there may be some parallels there. Yeah. But anyway, to answer your question, I don't think Pericles was um, the the, the greatest planner, but he was certainly a very, very big leader. So he was the leader that made everything happen in in Athens at that time. He brought together the planners and the architects and the philosophers. You know, he created the environment, the place, this, this word that I love because of the connections with the academy. So he was the leader and, um, that made it happen. Not necessarily the planner. Um, I, I, I loved his oration to the Athenians. I'm sure you probably know it all when he extolled um, the virtue of citizenship. And he told the Athenians, you must be very proud of your city, uh, because all this was is your creation, but being proud is not enough. You must contribute to the city. So someone who does not contribute to his community has no place in that community. And he gave a ve- the, the value of citizenship, according to Pericles, was very, very important. And and this is why I considered him to be a great leader if not necessarily a great uh, planner uh, thank you
0: andreas <laughs> I, I, I love the idea that um community you you've come you brought us back to something that we you know we all try and um add value to yeah. through our various uh, roles and I I, I I think that's really interesting and very telling now I'm really sorry to say, Sasha and Chris, that I'm going to deny you a question because it's time up and I'm terribly sorry, but I've got a hot dinner date uh, that I've got to get to here in Val So I'd like to say thank you so much, Andreas, for being such a super interesting guest. And I thoroughly agree with uh, one of the listeners who said, what a great dinner date you'd make because you're so interesting. <laughs> I, it's
1: been my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's, it's, um, yeah, uh, it's been a lot um,
0: pleasanter than being cross-examined by any one of you. <laughs> good, good. Well, that's how it should be. We don't want any of our guests to feel that no. they've been cross-examined. So I'd like to say thank you all uh, to the rest of my panelists. Thank you very much, Rob, for your IT support as ever. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Grant Butterworth, who's the head of planning at Leicester City Council, one of those 35 percenters, if I can put it like that. Yeah. So we see you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye.